0: You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com/slash-with-amex. This week on the Mike Wise Show, our guest is the author of more than seventy books, including two on Kobe Bryant, three on Michael Jordan and the Bulls, and one on the great Phil Jackson. He's a master storyteller, and he's coming right up. But the rules around here say ladies first. So, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post and ESPN. He's also a wise ass and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Thank you, Darlene, as always. And I love your accent because it's not fake like a lot of these American actors. Roland Lazenby is a literary legend. With this week's anniversary of the death of Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gigi and seven others, Roland was the ideal guest to join the show. He wrote two books on Kobe, the most recent in 2016. In addition to his books on Kobe, The Bulls, Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan, Roland has also written books on Jerry West and many others. He's also an educator at Virginia Tech and Radford University. Welcome Roland to the podcast for the very first time. Uh, Although We've known each other for a while.
1: Yeah, thank you, Mike. We have known each other for a while. And you've helped me with a few of those books just by granting me interviews.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I never asked for money, um, and I didn't need it then. Now I need it, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, uh, the, the, um, I, I remember distinctly, before we go deep into Kobe, um, when I was covering the Knicks for the New York Times and then later the NBA for the New York Times, you know, they would send me out periodically to do either Kobe feature, or Shaq feature and, and uh, or Lakers and Lakers and dysfunction feature. And, and I distinctly recall one of my very me- memories was um, I'm, everybody's waiting for Kobe and he's still shooting shots and Roland Lazenby is rebounding for him. You were actually really bad And you're like passing the ball back to him while he talks and you got your recorder going and I'm going that bastard, he's getting a better story than all of us. And, uh, but, but you could tell even in that moment, I don't know how your relationship progressed with him, but even in that moment, there was a genuine trust and he, he genuinely, uh, liked being around you. And I'm sure as just, you know, in hindsight, it's one of those moments where you don't, you think oh, I'm talking to some you know new young star in the NBA and who would know that he'd become one of the, maybe one of the top five, 10 players of all time and he died tragically and we'd all have these incredible memories of him now.
1: Yeah, he was a very lost and lonely kid at that time. And yeah. I was actually spending a, a good amount of time with him. I'd gotten to know him over a couple of years and uh, i introduced him to tex winter and tex was an assistant at the bulls and kobe was so miserable i got tex to uh, start calling him and and uh, jerry Krause went tex is calling kobe what's going on with that you know and <laughs> this was in that period where phil was sort of becoming a free agent
0: and there was yeah the it was pre phil the tex hadn't even joined phil with the uh, with the staff yet
1: But I got Kobe hooked up uh, that 99 season, the short season. um, I had George Mumford, the mindfulness expert, fly down to Houston to meet Kobe courtside. And Kobe, we were talking and Kobe was going, let me get this straight we don't have, we, we hardly have time enough for practice in the NBA. And you're telling me that Phil Jackson takes practice time to have everybody sit cross legged on the floor and listen to your ass. And, and George went, yes, that's how it works. And they became so close. Those were two of the people that really were part of the Kobe rescue.
0: Wow. That's, uh, it's amazing. He, um, he was such a headstrong, stubborn kid with all this talent and he just needed direct. just needed direction. And once he found it, it was, you know, when it was off the charts. Um,
1: Next was the Kobe
0: whisperer. He would say, you're okay to feel this
1: way. You know, the or- the offense is unorganized. And Kobe, uh, Kobe had told me while we were rebounding those free throws, just to back up, he had said, you know, I've always dreamed that Tex Winter would be my coach. And I said, wow. dude, Texas, is my friend. I know Tex, I'll get him to call you. And Kobe had wanted that that uh, experience. He wanted some structure. Uh, the Lakers didn't have a lot then. So anyway, yeah. it was, um,
0: it, you know, it was uh, important to him. Very important. He was, also, you know. We talk about immaturity um, in some ways. Kobe, Kobe, even in then, when he was, he was looking for, he was looking for different ways. He was, he was, he was, he was open to receiving whatever help he could um, to make things better. I mean, and why wouldn't he? He was part of a team that Dell Harris went to um, have the last uh, huddle of the season before the thing. And, Of course, Nick Van Exel went out one, two, three, and Nick Van Exel goes Cancun right i mean exactly. talk about like uh, you knew they were going to get swept after that and so so he was ready yeah he, he was ready for another side to um develop his his ultra competitive gene yeah you know he would tell me uh i i would call him
1: and he would talk you know he had a lot of time and obviously like players in the hotel room and And uh, we would talk and he would just say over and over again, I just want to be the main. I just want to be the main. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to get there. I don't know how it's going to happen. And of course, his answer was, and and he had put all this pressure on those Lakers with not just with the way he played, but with how demanding he was. And Uh how he wanted them to do all this extra stuff. And they were looking at him. I had a, a student, I was speaking to a high school and I had a student ask me about Kobe. And she was like, 17, 18, and I asked her that. She said, I'm 17. I said, do you have an after-school job? She said, yeah, I work at the grocery store. Well, I said, this afternoon when you go into the grocery store, tell all the adults working there they're not working hard enough. Tell them you want them to stay after work, to <laughs> memorize all the groceries on all the aisles, to really work on their t- uh, on their cash register skills. And we're uh, really going to get this thing up in cooking because you're going to be running the entire grocery chain in just a few years. (laughs) That would be Kobe's approach.
0: That's great. Yeah. Kobe did become the man. Shaq just had to be traded. That's all. It took a lot. Yeah. Very uh,
1: fortunate to have Shaq. They were fortunate to have each other.
0: Yeah, they were. I, the one of the great things before Kobe's death that I really enjoyed was every time they spoke about each other, there was a, um, there was not only a reverence and a sort of a healing of any wounds, but there was a genuine acknowledgement that they were both stubborn knuckleheads. And had they uh, had they put their egos aside, who knows how many titles they could have won? And uh, you know, in very different ways, Shaq had tremendous
1: pressure on him yeah I mean, Kobe was putting tremendous pressure on himself
0: yeah yeah um when you um I wasn't close enough to him he it, to me he was like a peripheral guy covered even though I had a couple golden moments with him you know driving me around in his car at one point when he was like 19 on his way to New York for his first all-star game and it was about a few weeks before that and uh you know it was one of those things where he ended up, he wanted to go to his agent's office. And I said, well, you know, I've just wanted to get him in his car. And that that was, that was such a, it it was so, it's such a rare thing now because athletes are so insulated by their agents and everything, but he was very comfortable. And I remember having this moment with him and uh, I I never really found out who he was. And every time I'd see him after that, I felt the same way. But when he died, um, I, not only was it surreal, it was because I'd had it, uh, I, I was a father late, and I had a son, and, and one night he just said to me, he "Goes, Dad, it's sad. Kobe was only this, you know, forty-one, and is he's not going to get to grow up with his kids." And I was like, "Oh man!" Irrespective of how I felt about him, knew him, whatever, it just stung. Where were you when you? Where were you when you heard and when and how you felt? You're sitting right in this chair.
1: I mm-hmm. got um, a call from my former son-in-law. And right after that, I got a text from George Mumford. See, not long before he died, about a year before he died, Kobe, out of the blue, had called up George Mumford in Massachusetts and said, man, I got to see you. And see, George Mumford and Tex had sort of been in the middle of the Shaq-Kobe-Phil Jackson love-hate triangle. And so, uh, and both Shaq, uh, George Mumford was the one thing Shaq And Kobe could agree on. They called him their secret weapon because he had all of that mindfulness that took all the pressure off of them. And so Kobe flew George Mumford out to California, flew him all over Southern California in that helicopter. And showed him all of his operations down south, mm. you know, at Newport Beach, in that area, all of his media companies, all the things he was doing. And he was just telling George, I've never forgotten a word you've ever told me. And I appreciate it uh, you so much. And there was a side of Kobe. There, There was a part of him that I know what you're talking about. He mm. could just be an arrogant prick when he yeah. was a youngster. But I got a clue early on. I really saw him the night he scored his first NBA field goal and got to know him then. He bounced right in the locker room. He didn't know who I was. He hit me with a soul shake and we started talking. And (laughs) you know, it uh, it was really funny. I was sort of out doing a project on this whole group of young players. Come into yeah, the that's, oh, that's,
0: What a great moment!
1: And but Kobe was very organic, and that was a big part of my book, because he was viewed as a fraud. He was viewed as a Jordan imitator, and yeah, I really, I really had to drill down with Sonny Vaccaro, and Sonny made some confessions about the whole Kobe narrative that, and Kobe could have easily explained his narrative that what really happened. Sure, here. He didn't care at all. He just said, eventually my play will do my talking. He never bothered to answer any of that
0: um, misunderstanding of him. Well, I I think it was, yeah, there was so much going on there. I I think that that even though people said he wanted to be like Mike, There was a weird thing, like the truth is that his maniacal basketball session, his on-court quest for perfection, helped him to emotionally connect with fans in a way Michael Jordan never had to worry about. Because like, you know, each malicious dunk, each defender he made fall down, every dagger, the buzzer, you know, it helped the fluent and Italian kid of the Philadelphia suburbs gain acceptance among African-Americans reluctant to almost issue him a black card. it was almost like he wasn't black enough because he was he was too international and and he and it used to hate he used to hate the compartmentalization of the african-american athlete you know he he believed that down with the cause groupthink, short-circuited civil debate and genuine education about nuanced issues and i still go back to you know the, the the little tit for tat he had with jim brown years ago and when lebron james wore a hoodie to support trayvon martin and Kobe, it wasn't that he didn't think that was a worthy cause, but he was like, I want more facts first. And everybody looked at him like, you know, he wasn't black enough or something. And it, it really took, I think it it really bothered him on some deeper level. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, what what are you trying to tell me? There's, there's, there's 41 million African-Americans in this country, which means there's 40 million different ways to be black, just like there's how many millions of ways to be white. Right. I, I, um,
1: Kobe could be obstinate like that. And, and but also having a point to make, but obstinate too. Uh, the thing that struck me, you know, um, Kobe's dad, Jellybean, was in Sonny Vaquero's camp all-star thing yep. in 1972. And, um, you know, uh, Sonny Vaccaro hadn't seen Joe Bryant in 20-some years. And he's having one of those camps in 1994, I think it was. And it's for, for juniors and seniors. It's by invitation only. And here Joe Bryant shows up with this kid, his son, his sophomore, not invited, you know, just not on the radar for anybody. And Joe starts begging Sonny to let him in the camp. And Sonny goes, well, I knew you in, Joe, so I'm going to let him in today. And so Sonny's sitting there, and the kid's pretty good. Now, Sonny has been fired by Nike, and he's working for Adidas. Yes. As he's explaining his mission, he's going to find the next Jordan. He's going to stick it to Nike. He's going to stick it to the NCAA for what they did to Jerry Tarkanian. Right. He's on mission. And the more Sonny watches this kid, he's going – and he's looking for the it factor. And he's tried like Felipe Lopez, offering him money to turn pro. Nobody wanted to do that crap back then. It was a nightmare to, to be a, a boy and go try to play in the NBA. And uh, Kobe holds his own against the top players, as you can imagine. And he comes running over to Sonny Vaccaro afterward and gives him a hug and says, Mr. Vaccaro, I wasn't the best player in your camp this year. I promise you I'm going to be next year. And that's so so Kobe Kobe did that to Sonny. Yeah, and Sonny about fell over. He went, that's it. That's the freaking factor. And he goes to um, Kobe's AAU coach and tells him, um, this kid, your 15-year-old, is going to be my next Jordan. Now, you take any 15-year-old in deep AAU player in America, and at that level, that sort of ambition, you tell him he's going to be the next Jordan. Vaccaro said, you wouldn't believe the transformation suddenly he had that shaved head he you know he started talking like jordan and and it it was it, it was seeded but then he had all this he'd already studied everybody on the planet he yeah. was a but but the whole narrative was seeded and joe and his wife pam needed money people didn't realize he'd been a pro for 16 years he was broke mm. And Sonny said the most clandestine thing he ever did. He got Gary Charles out of AAU. Sonny moved to New York. He didn't want to be too close to Kobe. He got Gary Charles to engage Joe. And they began planning to, to pay Kobe all this big money for him to turn pro. And, you know, Kobe was just had enough ego to where he said, oh, yeah, I want to turn pro. But he really didn't. When it came time in, in March, early April of his senior year, to sign the contract that would make him turn pro, he, he looked at Sonny. They were doing it in New York. He said, Mr. Vaccaro, is there any way I can sign this contract and my parents can have this money and I can go to college and play ball? Wow. And um, wow. Tex Winter always said the difference, there were some differences between Michael and Kobe because Tex coached them both for longer than anyone. But he said the one difference was, you know, Michael went to UNC and played in that impossibly tight system of Dean Smith's. Bill Guthridge had been Tex Winter's point guard, had been his assistant coach. It was like Michael had all this character to be that guy who would put up with that stuff. Yeah. And the thing that kept Kobe from getting closer to his ambition of greatness was that he went into the NBA without anything right from high school and ran into that veteran Lakers team. Yeah. And was so miserable. Now it's not woe is me. Kobe went on to make his way, but
0: it took a while yeah um, it's funny how you you that that anecdote who um I'd heard once before about um his Sonny and probably from your book. and um the uh, it's interesting how he became estranged from his parents later. Well, he threw him out of his lives, yeah. but George
1: Mumford had explained this in the sort of split between Michael and Phil Jackson because Phil's yeah. a very manipulative guy. That's part of his mind games, oh, yeah. He, And as as George Mumford explained, manipulation ultimately leads to alienation. And Kobe had been really manipulated and managed um, financially in every way. And they're trying to manage his love life. And he just, on the eve of the 2001 playoffs, threw him out of his life. Cars towed, Uh, business closed down that they were working for him in, put their house overnight on the market. (laughs) Sold it right away, <laughs> uh, cut off their cell phones, would not take any calls,
0: surgically removed his family. Wow well, do you know um uh, a once told me this uh, I said well, you're not representing Kobe anymore and he goes Arn him was part of the surgical removal yeah, and I go well, what why he goes he goes uh i couldn't I, he goes uh and he goes well, why and he goes I'll tell you why. I told him to. I told him if he didn't sign a prenup um, before he married Vanessa, I would never represent him again. And he didn't. And he refused to sign it. He was so. And that's when Rob, Rob Palenka became his agent.
1: Right. And and Kobe removed Arntella. He removed yep. shoe company. He, yep. he ditched Adidas for Nike. He got rid of Shaq. He got rid of Phil. He had this power. You know, it wasn't the first time I'm writing now about Jerry Buss. We're in the age of player power today. And I I don't think that's a terrible thing. Lord knows the owners have had power forever, forever, and they've messed up plenty. So the players today are, are wielding a lot of power, and they're learning some lessons. And they're doing well in some cases and not so well in others. But Jerry Buss was the guy who really, he empowered a young Magic Johnson. Yeah. I mean, incredible power. And he empowered Kobe Bryant. He gave Kobe all that leverage. Uh,
0: before we get into your next book um, uh, on Magic, um, I, I want to, how does a person like yourself who lives in Virginia, whose, uh, whose roots are, seems like this part of the country, like end up becoming such a bona fide uh, Lakers aficionado and has written, you know, and spent a lot of your literary time on them. How, how did that connection actually, uh, I don't know if I know that part of the the Roland Lazenby story. Well, my old man, I, you know, I, my
1: old man was uh, one of the two-handed set shooters. His, he had th- several brothers, but three of them were all named Hopper. This was back in the 30s. When you know it was all set shooting, it was all hopping around with two-handed <laughs> dribbles and and taking those set shots and yeah. the them. Uh, the
0: Aussie Shackman years, yeah, I
1: call them. yeah. You know he the the Celtics came through town. He watched sure. Davey Banks sit in the stand. My father did and fling yeah. up a shot. And so my father's older brother was all state in West Virginia. He was one of the first scholarship players Virginia Tech, and my yeah. father was a really great athlete, set to go to Emory & Henry, which back in that era, they all gave scholarships. But right. he was set to go and his father dropped dead that summer. So he he went to work on the loading docks at um, Bluefield Supply Company. And so he never got to go to college. Ooh. I went to VMI, it was a walk-on in football, had, um, had different things, but my old man absolutely worshiped Jerry West.
0: So there now i'm finding it
1: and uh he died i was working as a night police reporter at the roanoke times and he had a uh, a brain tumor it, t- it was a long difficult ugly death mm. and i would go finish my work shift at 1 1 30 and i'd go over and sit up in the hospital with him late at night it was uh quite an experience for me um mm. My father never really approved of me. I didn't understand this till I wrote the Jordan biography, how that shapes your life. But he died that February in 81, 40 years ago. And um, man, I had always played pickup basketball. I loved it, but I, I just started playing it like it was. And I just played and played and played. Hmm. And um, I was it was just how I felt close to it. And then I, I got I, I got a scholarship to get the writing school at Hollins, here at Hollins University here in Roanoke. The newspaper I worked paid half. I still had to work full-time, 50, 60 hours a week. But, <laughs> but then Hollins gave me a half scholarship. And I got in there, and I just looked at what I was going to do, and I thought, I'll write a book on Ralph Sampson. <laughs> and so You know, Ralph was coming into his senior year. It was really a cultural story, you know. I I, I write basketball, and I've coached a lot of basketball now. I used to run triangle with some of the youth teams I coached and AAU teams just so I could really understand what the Bulls were doing when I was doing all that writing.
0: That that brought you spiritually closer to Tex. Oh, it did. I had Tex
1: on speed dial. (laughs) And <laughs> he loved to talk triangle and yeah. running it with 12-year-old girls. And, and we went to AAU Nationals and burned through the tournament. And if we hadn't had a couple of things happen, we'd have won it. But we finished like eighth night somewhere in there. Brought him a big ass trophy. But but anyway.
0: Bastard AAU well, people. No gosh.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh I but I got the full look at AAU and how yeah. it was, but but my point in all this is I was writing the Jordan book and I looked at how his fatherly disapproval just ignited something in him. And I look back, you know, by the time I was doing the Jordan book, hell, I'd written 50 or 60 books, mm. a couple of which were actually pretty good. <laughs> and, and so, boom, it hits me. I've been doing this for my, and I sort of knew that, but it really hadn't come into my full consciousness. But, you know, once that Samson book, it got excerpted front page by the sporting news, got excerpted by the Associated Press and explaining all this stuff about Ralph. And it looked at the cultural change Ralph alone had brought to Virginia. And it was sort of the first big quake. Uh, I really got into looking at Basketball players as these Black Power figures mm. was there not in the H. Rap Brown mode of Black Power, right? But there are these very public cultural figures who, as we come out of this era, where I mean, there was nothing. It was all character assassination for black males everywhere. There was nothing. I grew up in a small mountain town. I I could see it everywhere. I, I would, the I would, I remember being about five years old and asking my mother why those people were going to the back of the restaurant to buy food mm. out the back of the restaurant. And, and so um, uh, it's always been a cultural story to me. And it's, it's mm. also the study of great competitors. It, it It's also these rich family stories. It's the same for Jerry West. Yeah. You know, he came out of, my father was out of, you know, the Southern Appalachians there in the West Virginia coal fields. And I wanted to tell their story. And Jerry's story is a heartbreaking story uh, when you uh, get into his family. But Jerry West descended from the colonial governor of Virginia, Lord Dela War Thomas West, Delaware named after him, you know, the, the legendary figure. And Jerry's, uh, uh, you know, I, several, uh, figures down jerry's great great however many great grandfathers got kicked out of the family and they moved over into west virginia where nobody wanted to live because well, of, of all the danger
0: and he, they became dirt scratching hillbillies over there yeah uh, zeke from cabin <laughs> creek yeah well yeah. so it did, it's interesting to me that you're, you're you know your your dad didn't approve. I, I, I can only guess why i didn't approve of you which probably had to do with he was a he was man hard working manual labor, and you were like a hell of a rider. <laughs> well, no,
1: he became he 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 was a bright guy. He became an he got
0: burned horribly. Okay,
1: when five years before I was born, he was spent two years in the VA hospital on a oh. stretcher frame. He he was he, he was we could only swim at midnight. He, he his body was scarred terribly, and he mm. was a great guy. But I, I you just can't begin to understand. What a screw up and a hellraiser I was. <laughs> and so uh it just was what it was. Yeah. And so that anyway, here I am writing these books, sort of well, you know, you know, to my yeah. own.
0: Do you um uh the, the magic book, um uh I, I, I trust magic uh, hasn't given you any time for it himself or has he?
1: I've interviewed him a lot over the years. Lon Rosen, his agent, has given me a lot of time. I've interviewed a lot of people. Oh, good. Initially, Magic had agreed to be involved. Yeah. But but Magic is known for cold feet, in and out, particularly when it comes to media projects. But Lon was sort of working him sort of like you work a a bass with a plastic worm. You just (laughs) got to let it sit there. And he... um, magic was coming around but then the last dance happened
0: and uh but
1: but i pretty much I i really
0: the last dance happened meaning meaning that this there could possibly be some financial oh he
1: got he got a deal he's got a documentary Ah, okay pay him 25 million or whatever some outrageous sum, and it um from espn uh, I, you know, I'm not Netflix, privy to that. Yeah. I, it's usually a production company that it will go yeah. to Netflix, and they're yeah. going to do the whole last dance kind of thing with
0: it. Okay, that hence hence why he hasn't joined my podcast in the last uh, year. That makes total he, sense.
1: He's really sort of withdrawn a lot of things, but yeah. was all interview team.
0: He would help me for years. And oh, yeah. Well, he came from a different era when we could walk into the locker room and the stars wouldn't be hiding out in the training room. They would be in front of their lockers and they would bullshit with the riders for uh, a half hour or more before they had to worry about getting ready for the game. It was just a different era. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think I begrudge the guys now as much as I begrudge uh, how many people surround them and tell them uh, what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. But, uh, you know, magic, I mean, magic for me was like, he was the hero of my, uh, you know, adolescence, 15 years old. He comes walking out of the international marketplace in, in Honolulu. I talk him into being a rickshaw driver. I become his, his pedicab driver for, for a week. And the last day I bring him to Alamoana mall. And he looks at me after his girlfriend says, uh whispers to him and he comes back and he goes what's your address and i go uh here i wrote my address and he goes i'm going to send you a pair of these shoes and they were the oh my god 15 years old the converse purple thrillers i mean i was just in heaven i am still waiting for those fucking shoes roland <laughs> what right was now. he 15 in hawaii i was 15 he was oh. 19. Good. He had yeah. He was not. Before. He had just, it was two weeks before his first training camp with the Lakers. Right. Well, that that fit. You know, I've just
1: finished yeah. uh, the two chapters that cover Game Six, leading yeah. Game Six, the crazy year that 1979 was in LA. Oh, so that
0: will uh, 7980. It was insane. I remember somehow, like this was back in the day when, like you know, I I thought I was an intrepid reporter my um, my dad, the guy who did this feature story for the Honolulu Star Bulletin, cause my dad was a feature copy editor there. He gave me an address for the Lakers and I was so pumped. And I sent, you know, the note to him like, hey man, you know, never heard from. So I, I was intrepid, I called up 411. Like I'm literally 411, I'm in LA at the time. I figured I couldn't dial it from Hawaii because it cost too much, my parents wouldn't let me. I'm in LA, we're going to Disneyland, I'm 15, 16. I call him up. I call. Is there an Irvin Johnson in Culver City? I heard he lived in Culver City. Boom! I get a. I'm, I got a landline. Guy calls up and he. Go, I go. Is is Irvin there? And he goes. Yeah, yeah. Who's this? Um. I in my. And he goes. Uh, and then a guy comes back and he goes. No, he's not here. I mean, come on. He should, that, uh, Well, of course I've.
1: That was whatever. his line. Yeah. He moved. And East Lansing, he had his phone number published. And this is really where sexual addiction had its roots. He had his phone. And the phone just,
0: women were crazy. Yeah. Well, and I remember his his, he, his college he, girlfriend was Cookie, right? Right. Cookie was a legend, But he brought a different girl to Hawaii that, like, to this day is one of the wildest stories ever because... Ten years later, at a Converse promotional, I said, "You're not going to believe this, but I took you around. Here's the laminated newspaper article from Hawaii and the Star Bulletin, and me and you and my long hair, and we're standing by the, you know, the little uh, three-on-three game we had behind the behind the Honolulu Zoo." And he he looks at me and he goes, "What happened to your hair?" And um, and then I said, um, "Yeah," and I, and I asked him, "What happened to this woman whose name was Cherie Pie? This woman." Um, he told me, he goes, he says it to me really privately on the side and he goes, um, he goes, it was awful. Uh, she married a minister in Wisconsin and he went crazy and murdered her. And, um, and, uh, and she was the sweetest woman. I mean, you know, but I'm sure just one of many girlfriends of his growing up, but I could see her face to this day. And it always like, always shocked me. Like what happened Or Like what happened to her? How did that happen?
1: Yeah, well, he had a honeypot. He had that phone and he had that phone listed in Culver City. He oh, had okay. know, okay. And as George Andrews' agent explained, it's in the book, had so many women crawling in there, they had to do something to stop it all.
0: Yeah. And,
1: but it and it's like Magic said uh, you know, I lived that life from the yeah. from the very first minute. And it was almost platonic with cooking. It was, uh, you know, he flew back to Lansing right after that eighty championship. and yeah. gave her the ring right there,
0: but he was already, yeah, keeping, he was headed toward addiction. Cookie was a good cookie was a good, uh, uh, not beard for him as a gay person, but a beard for him as a monogamous person. Right, and yeah. and he stood her up twice to get wow. married
1: before they got married. Yeah. It was tough. Uh, Irvin came from this incredible situation. He was just, you know, I coached I, I, right in that period, in the mid seventies. I was co- i was a head varsity head coach at twenty-four years old, and I co- i coached Ricky Hunley um, right before hot, hot Rod Son. No, Ricky Hunley, the great Denver Broncos linebacker. But oh, okay. he was the second team linebacker in Petersburg, where I was coaching at Peabody Junior High School, and I I had done all this coaching. Peabody was the former black school, been turned into a junior high, had all these racial issues, and so I came out of all of that period in Magic's life in Lansing, with all the busing, all the racial trouble. (coughs) He was, without a doubt, one of the most unbelievable adolescents I've ever run into. Wow. Just in going back and, and piece by piece. It's almost yeah. like archaeology putting their early lives together. But you have to get all the detail. And his, his parents, so remarkable. Yeah. Just uh, an amazing, he, it's like of his buddy said. He was the mayor of Lansing. At seventeen, he was the mayor of East Lansing. At nineteen, he was the mayor (laughs) of L.A. At twenty,
0: that's so true. All of it. Uh, it, it, We talked earlier about the notion that you know the there's something about covering the the uh, prominent black athlete, the prominent black as sort of a there's a cultural cachet there, power. I want to say in in his own way, John Chaney, who died this week, the Temple head coach, who coached the Owls for 24 seasons, yeah, like John Thompson, very much pioneers back in the day when every, seemed like every coach was white and old and, and had been, uh, co- you know, had been brought up by someone else that was white. And these guys were like pioneers and to lose two of them, John Thompson and Chaney in five months. I mean, you talk about uh, I, I think it's funny how we look at it now. If you're a millennial, you, you kind of go, oh, yeah, uh, Brian's, Brian, uh, Byron Scott got another job or see so like, like, when, when, you know, Ty Lue got another job. It doesn't like the best thing about the NBA, I can say is now we have the black retrade coach. We still don't have that hardly in the NFL. But I yeah. guess what I'm saying is is there was such a progress there. Back then, you never thought, you know, those guys, th- those guys were such pioneers. And I don't know. I John I didn't Thompson. Know, I didn't know him. I just and uh but I John just read the stories and it's crazy, it's
1: wild. You ask how I got from being a hillbilly down here in the Blue Ridge Mountains to covering basketball. After yeah. the Samson book, John Thompson read it and liked it. And so when they won the national championship, I was an $18,000 a year police reporter in Roanoke. I had done that. I had done a basketball book on Ralph. And when Georgetown won the national title, John Thompson hired me to write their national championship story. I made and I had to do it in a hurry. And then they hired me to go to the tournament with them again the next year. But I made thirty thousand in about eleven weeks, which oh. changed my economic status. And really, um, you know, I got to know Billy Packer. I started doing all these different projects with Billy. Yeah. And so John really was the guy um, who changed my life. By That's awesome. A- And and of course, I had no, that's another part of the story I didn't know. That's a great story. And I was in, I was in Kentucky the next year. You know, I had another $30,000 contract. Uh, I had a $6,000 kill fee. And And if you you
0: look, and if we, if someone actually put in two, if, if my producer, Bruce Bernstein was really. A crack shot reporter. He would put in right now what thirty thousand in nineteen eighty four translates to today. That was cash, my friend. That it was, was real serious. cash
1: for me. It was serious cash. And then I had they were right there, ready to win the second one. I was going to get another thirty grand. And Adolf Rupp haunted that game. And uh, Villanova shot. I'm sure Adolf Rupp was
0: was what does Adolf Rupp have to do with that game? He it was in Rupp Arena. Oh, and, duh! Yeah.
1: And he, you know, he was the the ultimate racist of the game, and I'm sure he was there guiding all those Villanova shots in to defeat But it cost me twenty four thousand dollars.
0: Oh my God, that 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 upset did? Yes, I have oh. never
1: bet on sports. And I would. I, ju- I would. Oh. I, I learned my lesson that night. You can. I lost twenty four thousand dollars because all I got was a six thousand dollar kill fee for. All yeah.
0: I mean. Um. You, you're a, a contemporary of, um, uh. Well, your your career is a contemporary of the Jordans, maybe the Kobe's. LeBron is like I covered a lot of LeBron over the years, but I almost feel like he's almost outside of my realm at this point. I still think if he wins one more, you know, how, does, how is he not the greatest of all time? Your thoughts, having done a book on Jordan, spent all that time around Kobe? Well,
1: I, uh, I have a two-book deal with McMillan, and the second book is supposed to be a biography on LeBron, and I've, I've been day drinking with his uncle in Akron. At the cedar at this grim little outpost called the Cedar Wings Lounge, I have done lots of work. His father, who was wait, murdered, Frankie,
0: Frankie Walker. No,
1: yeah, uh, um, yeah, Walker. Uh, was it Frank it, Frank? Frankie was no, Frankie, Frankie was
0: his youth coach, and he oh, lived right, with him. I've had
1: dinner with Frankie and talked yeah. about it. No, this was his mother's brother. Okay, My mother has two brothers. And one of them is a tough guy, but he, I was there with one of uh, LeBron's youth coaches who the brother owed some money. And the, back then I, I was carrying even more weight than I am now. He thought I was the, the muscle to collect the money, but we had this great time drinking in the bar and he, he broke down crying about his family. And I have tremendous respect for LeBron James I, I mean, he is what I you know. VMI they talk about the citizen soldier. I think LeBron James. The trend I see is he's the citizen athlete, mm. and he he really has. I, I also am fascinated because I write a lot about mothers and fathers and all of this stuff, and I I know I have great friends who are fatherless children who are unbelievable people, and yeah. so I. I I, I was eager to tell this story. His father was named Roland, a guy named Roland who was murdered. Well, uh, it,
0: it, that's never been actually, rep, um, what do you call it, uh, confirmed, but I, I agree I agree no, it, with you. No, I've, I've
1: done all the interviews.
0: With, right, right. With you know, the funny thing was, for, you, if, if you've done all the interviews, you probably know that Wright Thompson is supposedly had this story in the bank for a long time and it hasn't yet run. I'll tell
1: you why. Why? And Wright Thompson's brilliant. I had done several years of work on it when I heard he was gonna start doing the story. Okay. And, but there's no way you can tell the story legally. I don't believe, to tell the true story because you have to look, his mother does not fit the pattern of this ideal mother. And yet, all of the essentials uh, she provided to LeBron, there's this love. It it doesn't fit the standard view. But to explain that to people and to show that story, you really walk through a legal minefield.
0: Well, I, 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 I think it's as easy as this. Oh, uh, well, I, I think it's as easy as this. I, I've got all the information, too. And I, I'm going to if you haven't spoken with this person um, that that used to run his website um, a long time ago and was sort of kicked out of the uh, rich and. Um, what's we the other guy? Chris. Yeah. Chris Dennis.
1: Yeah. I've spent so much time. Chris Oh,
0: good. Good. So he's so he's so, so he's a goldmine. You,
1: miner. you need to tell this story. Right, what's that? Chris recruited me to tell.
0: Yeah, and so he, so he's wanted that to come out a long time. My gut is this, and I, and like, I've between us transparently <laughs> between anybody that listens to this, I, I had no problem. There was a part of me that was, I had the, I had the story. I had, uh, I, I had not gone to Louisiana where some of his, uh, that side of the family lives, but I had, I had a lot of it. And my thought was this, um, and I saw, spoke to Rich Paul about it a little bit. What, you know, Rich tried to play dumb and act like you know, well, who is it? And anyway, you know, and and there, he was almost fishing for information more than he really. Um, I, I knew that he was, but but the bottom line is, is I almost feel like LeBron is wants to announce this himself. And even if it's LeBron James, I don't, I, I don't know if it's my. This is just me, and you'll come to your own decision. Like, okay, okay. I don't even know if it's, I don't even, it's, it, it, you know, who am I to out a guy's biological father, even with a birth certificate, even with a pr- logical proof, uh, it legally, I think, I think it's more ethically than legally, almost. I think it's both. And okay. How is it, how would it be legally if you actually have the birth certificate and the, um, and everything else that, 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 that proves that he's his father?
1: Um,
0: I mean, to me, it would just be a bad, it would be a, it would be an ethical judgment not to ask him if he was okay with it. That's the only thing.
1: Right. I, you know, I, I've interviewed Roland's mother, Cookie. Okay. I, I, I've done all of the stuff. There's a general acknowledgement of it. That's part of the legal problems. You you can't really right. get that down. But the, and there's a huge moral ethical part of it but the other part of it is cookies are not cookie, but his mother is not a public figure. She doesn't really project herself into the world. She's not trying to make a living off of her persona. She's a private person. Yeah. And, I, I just know, having gone through a number of legal reviews on books, um, and I explained this to Chris, and I explained to him why Wright Thompson's story never appeared. Why? For all of these reasons we've just laid out.
0: I be- I think it's more than that. I think. I think ESPN. God bless my former employer. I think. I think there's a de- there. there that somehow there's going to be a deal, maybe not by ESPN, but that LeBron is going to somehow tell that he wants to have, um, uh, he wants to have that story to himself to tell the world and he wants to capitalize on it. Which God love. Yeah, God I, I love, like fine. but I just I, it. I think that, I almost think like that would be the only reason because technically if you got LeBron, if you, if you got LeBron, if you had a minute with LeBron and you said, look, I know, I know the story, I know, can I use, can I use this? And he said, yes, boom, you're scot-free.
1: Right. Um, it would be hard to, to spend the time doing a LeBron book absent the fact that I really have never spent any time with LeBron James. Yeah. A big part of it. I, uh, all the other people I've written about in that regard, I it's not like I'm the best friends of any of them. I was, you know, Michael Jordan, Treated me very well, but it took me a good while to have that kind of relationship with him. And now he's very pissed off at me for having written uh, his his biography. He shook my hand afterward, but he's not happy um, because he and, wanted to
0: monetize it himself. Or w- well,
1: possibly, you know, biographies are like biographies for people who are still living are sort of like having autopsies while you're still alive.
0: <laughs> That's and actually it's, pretty good. It is, and my wife said, "I've <laughs> not if you could, married... not if you actually could, not if you uh, not if you help."
1: <laughs> but I've been married forty six years, and and my wife said, "Look, if you first, she didn't want me to write anymore, and I probably won't. But she says, if you're going to do another book, pick an old dead guy." <laughs> she said,
0: That's "Actually, not a bad idea."
1: Yeah, I you know what? It's just, um... yeah. I, I treat, I, I really think, I you know, I don't go around Black Lives Matter, but I treat, I give these guys the treatment of a president in terms of their cultural impact. There's no question. Oh, yeah. Jordan is a huge, you know, they write these big biographies on presidents. I have no problem writing a, a big, bio, the, you know, there's there are no statues of American presidents in China right. like there are of Kobe. And,
0: and, and Stefan Marbury.
1: Right. right. <laughs> and the culture. Sadly influence. enough, no. Yeah, to me, yeah. it is one yeah. of the premier. There are many articulations of Black power, but it's one of the premier. And I think it is yeah. really important. Uh, cultural growth. I mean, we've got to stop being animals and, and start being uh, a racially aware society. And I don't know. I, that that process has been excruciating in this country.
0: Yeah, well, help. I'm 35 minutes from my door here in D.C. We had a little shindig about three weeks ago. It wasn't uh, wasn't pleasant no, for no. anybody, and uh, there was there weren't a whole lot of African Americans in that group. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, oh God. Uh, it's All
1: right, so uh, slip backwards.
0: No, no. Yeah, you know, you're right. This has been like really uh, fascinating to me, uh, it, more um, the, a conversation than an interview. And to me, those are the best podcasts. I think um, I want to end on, if um, if you're okay with it, um, uh, how you and your wife's marriage has been for the past 46 years since she's sitting there in the kitchen. I'm kidding. You don't have to tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> She you can she what? she can jump on and tell me that's okay. I, I you know I, I, I've, you done I've done it for eleven years. I've done it for eleven years, and I'm just I need some advice right now. Well, you know, um, my great advice
1: yeah. for relationships is to have a tremendous amount of blind luck. So much blind luck that you can survive it, because I've watched. I have three children and three beautiful grandchildren. And I've had many friends. I don't think there's anything in life that nobody knows who the other person is when you're getting married. No one really has any idea of how you're going to, or even if you settle into a long-term relationship, how you're really going to have things break in terms of personality and interest and just good old everyday luck. Yep. And so, uh, my whole belief about it is if you're going to have great success in a relationship, have all the immense good fortune you can find, and have oh, things yeah. not not uh, come into your life that would wreck any human being. And, uh, and and there are all kinds of things like that. They don't have to be they don't even have to be gigantic. They could just be things. They could be job loss. Or, oh, any kind of sudden change like that, you know, uh, uh, that is profound. And so I, 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 there's no, there's
0: no answer to those. Okay. No, this is good. I no, I appreciate it. And and lastly, I, I just think we need to have a real quick conversation about the state of journalism, because when we met and we're talking almost 30 years ago now, um, uh, 20, 30 years ago that so the, the world was such a different place media wise, not just uh, uh, journalism in general, but especially sports journalism. And there was a, if not a coda, there was sort of a, okay, newspapers are still king, but the magazines are great. And then you have these book writers and then, and the TV people are uh, to be, um, to be not trusted, but, uh, be congenial with. And, and now it's sort of like, if you don't have a radio gig, a podcast and a show and a, like, who are you? And it's, it's, it's almost like we've, we've come to a place where we know about more things, but we know less about, uh, we know about more things, but we know less about those things. We used to know, we used to know a few things. We used to know everything about it. Now we know about every little thing there is, but we really, we have a Wikipedia page on it and we don't really get deep.
1: No. Um, and it, it takes immense effort to sort out relationships. And uh, uh, I think that's one of the reasons I ended up writing full biographies because that that was sort of the last refuge of a scoundrel, which is <laughs> what I say for um uh, Uh, All of journalists, the last refuge of a scoundrel. But I taught (laughs) college journalism for 20 years, 11 of it at Virginia Tech, nine at Radford University. And when I started teaching and when I'd come along, I was a news writer and I uh, covered the court system. I got this wonderful education as a news writer. I had been, uh, I had played some college football. I'd been a high school varsity head coach, but I really want, and so I ended up in journalism after that. And it was great. But when I started teaching in 1992, there were no sports jobs available. You did not even, there was not even a mention of sports journalism in the curriculum. And all the jobs were taken by people who kept them for a a long time. And there was turnover, but it wasn't much. And it was in an elite little area. And it was, it took me forever. I, I finally was able to start writing for the local weekly in Blacksburg, Virginia, because people wanted to know about my team. And I would write articles and quote myself. On your AAU team? No, when, my, when I was the varsity head coach. At Blacksburg. Oh, right. Okay. And so um, from there, Um, here comes the internet. I'll never forget. I was doing a story for Fox News in like 95 or 96. My first internet story. And it posted, 12 minutes later, I got this email from a kid in Iceland. (laughs) And and it hit me like a wallop. And of course it changed my life because it began introducing me to all these people. But it also changed sports journalism suddenly all of the jobs, as you remember, those, those news jobs were the ones that constricted as we moved through the 90s into the new century. And suddenly you could have three kids go out and do something like Lakers Glory and they could create 200,000 people following the Lakers. And so you had all these sites being created. Uh, you know, Sports Century bought, I mean, um, uh, ESPN brought uh, bought up Henry's uh, uh, website, True Hoop, and all yeah. these different bloggers and things became established, and and that sort of mushroomed, in with it, all these jobs they weren't ideal jobs. You had to be a one man band to make twenty grand a year, sort of like being a musician. Right. You know, you had to. You, they have people who've made it big. In music these days, at Van Lucera out of uh, Memphis, they were, they've been on MTV a bunch and all this stuff. They're making 16 grand a year each. And so, yeah, it all changed. But but sports journalism, if that's what you call it. But I, I will add this also, I was thinking about this about writing basketball. Now that I'm writing, the context for writing about 20th century basketball yep. requires so much. The game, there's never been a game I don't believe, maybe I've been around when they, they, they got the rabbit ball, you know, baseball did its change 100 years ago or whatever. But the game of basketball has changed so profoundly and dramatically, and it has been changed willfully by the rules makers. And we're hardly talking about this same sport. I'm describing college basketball, no shot clock in 78, 79, uh, you know, no three pointer, uh, that, that game.
0: And then the game that came to be in the 21st century. Yeah. There are no resemblance. Uh, It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. I, um, my son is five one. He's 10. And he's um and he can handle the ball great. And all he wants to do is shoot threes. And I'm like, it's a disease. He should go under the basket and learn a back to the basket game. But that's okay, whatever. You know, I, I um well, they'd have to go back and change the timeline rule. They'd have to
1: go back to 10 yeah. seconds. Yeah. They'd have to go to the 24 second on the reset instead yeah. of 15. So you could run a little bit of set offense. You don't have to, but you yeah. shouldn't shove the game along so much as they do now that you, you know what, can't play, but
0: one way, you know, what have been one of the, I'm going to finish with this. You know, what have been one of the greatest college coaches of all time, Seth Greenberg, had he actually signed Steph Curry, the idiot. <laughs> well, you know, I, I did a Steph story and I'm
1: from Blacksburg. So, you know, I, I, I had Seth's daughter in my journalism class, but, Steph Curry changed dramatically after his junior year.
0: Yeah, no, I, you, you never know. It was, it's almost like a Tom Brady story. You it don't is. know what somebody's going to become. And that idea that somehow we get the, the picking of people is such an inexact science because some people grow, some people, some people develop a swagger, some people develop height, and you just don't know. Paige Moyer, Charlie Moyer's son, the former Virginia
1: Tech coach, Paige, was coached at Rona College very tight with Del Curry. He goes down to Charlotte to watch his son playing and uh, Del uh, to watch Steph playing as a junior that summer after his junior year. And he goes, oh, my God. And he calls up Seth Greenberg and says, Seth, you got to get this kid a scholarship. You can't screw around with this right now. And, and Seth got on it and he said, crap. I don't have any scholarships. So he called and they offered, look, you come walk on first year. You got a full four ride. But you know what? If he had gone to Virginia Tech, he'd had to play with uh Jamon Gordon and those straight-up dogs. Oh, and, right. Down at – That's a good quote. Down at um, – Davidson.
0: Yeah, he got the keys to the machine right away. Oh, yeah. And that co- coach – he had a great coach, too. Yeah. Bill, I mean, he just it. Yeah, great coach, and plus he's you know he comes out of no, He's the uh, he he, he's the Cinderella story, you know. He's uh, knocks off Georgetown, comes within a god. If he had, not I wished he hadn't passed on that Kansas possession and uh, had a chance to take him to the Final Four. Oh well. All right. Well, this has been great.
1: Plenty big.
0: Yeah, this has been great. Thanks for the patience. Thank you. uh, Yeah, thank you, and um, and also thanks um. Thanks to your wife's patience. And lastly, um, the next time I'm having you on, I'm going to find out how, how a Hellion um, actually ended up at VMI, the Virginia military. Well, sir, Institute. Virginia. I think that's
1: a story. I served three and a half years of barracks confinement. It was like being in military. See, that's perfect. We'll start off with that. Tell Bruce? Yes, sir. Hey, Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Your uh, stories are just, your stories are just amazing.
0: I hope that we can have you come on again sometime. Yeah, Uh, that was great. That was dope. (laughs) Thanks to my guest, Roland Lazenby. Follow him on Twitter, at Lazenby, L-A-Z-E-N-B-Y. Bruce Bernstein, you know him well. He's produced every one of my shows, all 104 of them. Thank you, Bruce. Tom Phillip edits the show every week and he's made all of us better. And I'm kind of bummed. This is Tom's final show. He's moving on, got a good gig, but we'll always appreciate his great work. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops media shows. Full Court with Jenny Fisher and Kara Kay has the best college hoop each Tuesday. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin is here every Wednesday. Bucket Sports & Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure has a new pod every Thursday. And BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman have the Pure Hoops podcast each Friday. And of course, I got a new Mike Wise show every Monday. We also have a bunch of great segments you can check out on the Pure Hoops Media YouTube channel. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Our biggest hope for 2021 is that the COVID vaccine is given to every person on the planet so we can snuff this pandemic out as quickly as possible. But until that day arrives, please keep your guard up. Wear the mask in public to protect yourselves and others. Wash your hands, keep your distance, and just be considerate. And keep all the medical professionals in your prayers because look, everybody knows they're the real heroes. Till next time, aloha. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Wiseass Show, but it remains a presentation of pure hoops media.